Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Pluscast with your host Taylor. Very excited uh, for today's guest. We have the amazing Alex Brightman with us. Hello Taylor. Hello everybody. Hello Pluscast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. I am uh, sitting in my office slash second bedroom trying to get some work done and also trying to find a better work-life balance for myself in general. Yeah work-life balance is important and it's I think I feel like it's very hard when we're all working at home and working from our bedrooms right when you're when you're working from your life it's hard to find the balance you're working inside of where you also live it's yeah. uh, sometimes difficult but 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 you know we've, we've been about two years of trying to do that so I'm, I'm minorly successful at it thus far so we've got some questions that we're going to ask you, um, and then we're going to do a little quick fire round. Uh, oh, I am notoriously terrible at those, but I'm very excited about it. So the first question, obviously you've originated a couple of roles in musicals, which is amazing. How does yeah. it feel to have created quite a few of these iconic roles? And have you got any audition stories or uh, how you got the job kind of things that you can share with us about those? I, I didn't realize the value in creating an original role really until I was doing it. And I even think maybe until I was in the middle of doing it. And this, I'm not speaking of School of Rock or um, Beetlejuice because I, I did a show called Big Fish where I got to originate a role. Um, it wasn't one of the leading roles, but every single person in that show got to originate something. So it was the first time I found the value in like putting your stamp on something that is gonna happen not just once because it's gonna happen multiple times. So it's, for me, I really, discovered how much I loved doing that. Um, and then sort of retroactively figured out like I was built for that. Like I'm really based around improv comedy and really thrive when it comes to making things up where there weren't things there. I don't necessarily always need a script. I do love a script to play off of, but I really, really love playing around and just seeing what's there. And, and so that's been a really big joy that not only have people let me do it, but encourage me to do it. So that's been uh, sincerely a dream and I don't say that to be hyperbolic I really I, I think a lot of people's dream is to do the thing they really love to do at a professional level that's very hard to do you can always do the things you love and you can always have a profession but I think rarely do you get to do the thing you love so much and actually make it a job so that's been really um really really exciting to be able to do that um the the really the only big story that I think goes with the originating thing is in School of Rock I was coming off of doing Matilda. So I was in the best shape of my life. I had like nearly a six pack in, in, in that kind of shape because that show is so physically strenuous and so much dancing. And you just, you know, that's your cardio for the day and every day. So I was coming off of that and, and um, then auditioning for School of Rock. And I really didn't look the part, to be quite honest. I looked a lot more like you, actually. Like I really did. I had sort of a very baby face because I, I had to shave every day for Matilda. And I was like much skinnier and much smaller looking just in general. So I was auditioning with these other people who really did look the part. They looked like Jack Black. They were like more like the type. But the director took a shine to my comedy, sort of like my style, um, which is not really a style necessarily. I think it's just who I am. Um, sarcastic, sardonic, whatever you want to say, but with a heart of gold. Um, and so I would 
I came in and I auditioned a couple of times, sang, did all the stuff you usually do. And then for my last callback, they had me um, read this big scene in the beginning with Dewey and the kids where he meets them for the first time and he's hungover. And it's this kind of incredible scene that's very sets up their relationship. And I memorized the scene and I did, I think, a really good job. And, and the reader, uh, there were two readers um, because there were so many kid roles, they were just having to kind of trade off. And we had a great time and I thought I did well and I left and I said, okay, great. I, whatever, you know, that felt good. I think I left everything on the table and then they called me back in and I was the only one they called back in and the director, Lawrence, um, Lawrence Connor, he said, I'm going to give you an opportunity that not most actors get, but I think you can handle it, which is I want you to do the entire thing over, which is a huge scene. It was like 11 pages, but I want you to make everything up because I want you to just forget what you learned and just improvise. And the readers will try to keep up with you because he knew, I think, that I did improv, that I sort of was like game for this. I just don't think he knew or they knew how much I had done it because I, was, I really do thrive doing that. So in my head, I was like, oh, perfect. And so I did and I, I mean, it was like 10 to 15 full minutes of just created material in front of these people for free which is, you know, a pretty big deal when you're asking an actor to really do, like, really do the thing. Um, and I did, I think I delivered and I felt it in the room. Like when I got done, I felt the table, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Julian Fellows, Lawrence Connor, all the rest of the people, I felt them sort of, I don't want to be too grandiose, but like I did feel like a change had happened in the room. Like something, someone, a couple of people might've not been sure about me. And in that moment, they were like, this is the guy. Um, and I walked out going, in the, my heart of hearts, I went, I think that might have just sealed this for me. And yeah. so, and then, you know, that, I think that night they called and they were like, we want you to do the workshop. And then from then on, it became, you know, everything, every day of a workshop is also an audition, in my opinion. So you have to keep being good, keep doing the thing that was magic in the room. So I tried and, you know, succeeded most days, failed some days, but that's every, everybody. And then got to originate. So it was a really unsuspecting thing, but it came out of the thing that I really love to do anyway, which is improvise and create on the spot and just be silly. And that's the best thing, isn't it? You get to do what you the love. The best, the greatest. It's the best. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's the, every time a teacher in, in middle school and elementary school told me to stop acting this way, now, now everyone tells me to do the opposite. Everyone yeah. goes, no, no, act that way. Never listen to your teachers, kids. That's right. That's the, yes, that's the message. And, do, and, and quit school and do drugs and uh, what else? <laughs> yeah. Every, yeah. Everything. Everything. Yeah, yeah. Break all the rules. Speed, you know, don't worry about the speed limit. Do over the speed. Everything. Yeah. Have you got any dream roles or roles that you'd love to play in the future? I have had this question a couple of times and I've always given a really boring answer. But the boring answer is true. So I want to get that one out of the way. And then I have a real answer. The boring answer, which is the truest one, but it is boring and unsatisfying, is because I love so much and found out how much of a love I have of creating, I, I, you know, my dream role is whatever the next one is I get to create. You know, it's like, it's not out there yet. It's, it's Beetlejuice was a dream role I didn't know I had, right? Like there are all these, like, there's a, a list of things, it's all blank, all checklist, and, and they, fill the, they start to fill themselves in as my career happens. Every time I get to create something or be on the ground floor of something, that's my newest dream role. So I don't have one that I'm looking towards necessarily all the time. I have ideas of what I want to do, things like, you know, I'd love to do a play um, soon. I'd, I'd love to sort of like take the musical stuff out of my life for a moment just to like play in that world of like a play and not have the crutch of uh, singing and, and performing, really get to like be vulnerable on stage and, and show a different side of myself that's not so wild and crazy. 
Uh, there's a little gentler. So there's like, you know, ideas that I want to pursue. But I did some thinking. And I do think that I, if they ever did a sort of gender bent production of Sweeney Todd, I think I have a real way in genuinely um, that could be a really interesting point of view to play Mrs. Lovett. Um, mainly because, I mean, there, it's been played by so many incredible people that like, it's like, you don't, we don't need me to do it. But I think that one of my favorite things to do on the street is when I see somebody who I, I, who I'm fascinated with, whether it is somebody who all the way from somebody who might be homeless to somebody who is a, a very elegant, fabulous, rich person on the street. I'm always curious about where that came from. Like that came from somewhere. They didn't, they weren't born. Neither of them were born that way. You know what I mean? Like neither of them were born with the persona that they have. And I'm fascinated with someone like Mrs. Lovett because that was somebody's kid at one point. That was somebody's little girl. That's weird to think about when you think you, people classify Mrs. Lovett and they see Mrs. Lovett for just the two hours that they're on stage. They know that that's how they know them. But I'm fascinated with the idea of what drove a person to get to that place. And I think I could really do a nice deep dive to get that sort of manic mania, um, you know, uh, really, really, really possibly clinically insane type of person uh, had to come from somewhere. And I'm very interested in that. So I think I have a real interesting take on it about like struggling to get back to the normal person that they might've been and what got them there and what triggers them. And so I think, you know, I, I would have a real take on that. I just don't necessarily think we all need to see me do that, but yeah, sure. That would be a fun, interesting way to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nothing yeah. normal. I don't love, I don't love normalcy. I, I like pushing the envelope and, and seeing where it goes. Yeah, and I think it's it's nice because obviously you've you've created quite a lot of roles. You've got to do quite a lot of the roles that I imagine were probably you know dream roles ish. Um, yeah, sure. Quite nice to hear things that aren't like mm, I'd love to be this character. You know, it's it's nice to hear <laughs> out of the box ones, deep. Very no, it's it's easy to you know it's a, it's if uh, it's easy to say I want to play like pseudolus in funny anything happened on the way to the forum. I think I could really I do think I would do a good job at that. I just don't know like what I'm bringing to it would be anything astounding. You know, I think I've seen incredible people do it. I saw Whoopi Goldberg play Pseudolus and it was one of the best things I've seen in a long time. I was a child and I was blown away. So yeah, there's plenty of those that like I would absolutely do, but I think like dream role, I think it would really be cool to like dive into something like a Mrs. Lovett, really, really dive. Number three is what was your musical theater training and background like? That's a great question. I don't get that question a lot. That's a great question. It's such a simple one. And we should ask more people that. Um, so I started doing musical theater when I was eight years old. I, I saw a show. There's a big story about, you know, that I tell all the time about going to see a show at the Winter Garden when I was a child and, and loving it and loving the whole experience. And, and then I came home to California and begged my parents to do whatever that was. And they, they found a place after a year because I had to wait this excruciating um, year of like, because you had to be nine or something like that, or eight and a half to do the shows. And I auditioned for A Christmas Carol, uh, which was uh, the very first show I ever did. I played Tiny Tim. Um, and I, my training basically consisted of me doing shows at this one theater company in San Jose, California, called CMTSJ, the Children's Musical Theater of San Jose. And that really, for a long time, was my training. Um, I, there wasn't really a lot of acting classes going on or vocal lessons going on. Like I learned by doing shows and trial and error, and you know, tripping up on stage and figuring out you know where I belonged and who I am on stage and what I am on stage. 
change through trial and error and just experience. Um, on top of that, in high school, I found um, improv and really took to that and really was like, this really taps into something that I think is going to be lifelong for me. Um, and that just taught me how to be a much more flexible thinker and actor and a way better auditioner. And just to be able to say, yeah, sure, I'll give things a shot. And I think it makes me more uh, uh, of an asset in rehearsals because you just, just, you just try stuff. You're more than willing to try because, and you know that the failing doesn't matter. Um, so there's that. And then I went to NYU for two years out of the four. Uh, I dropped out um, for various reasons. Um, and some good, some bad, but just mainly just because it wasn't working out. But the training I got there, some of it was um, incredibly vital. Some of the vocal performance training that I would have never known about, some of the vocal technique that I never had um, and, and have now continued to work on all stemmed from teachers there that said, hey, you're kind of singing wrong. And, you know, and I sort of didn't know what that meant. What they meant was I'm not singing healthily. And because I have this sort of rock and roll pop something kind of voice, I never learned how to control it. I was always fine uh, until I needed help. And so they were the ones that started that. So that's been my training. And up until then, now it's been, now I sort of take voice lessons and uh, every month, at least twice, and I uh, get my, my throat scoped by an ear, nose and throat doctor to make sure that all the damage I've done in the past is not haunting me in the future. Um, and that I can still do things like Beetlejuice healthily. Uh, but yeah, my training was a lot of experience. So it wasn't a lot of like joining up in classes and, and doing a lot of um, assignments. It was a lot of sort of learning by doing. If training is working out for you, great. If it doesn't work out for you and you feel like uh, maybe you don't need it in the moment, fine, but don't resent it. Don't, don't block anything out of your life um, when you're just starting this because you don't know who you are yet. And so you don't know what works for you all the time. And um, it's good to keep an open mind because... Uh, there is no set path for anything in this business, anything, no matter what you do. I mean, maybe if you're a spotlight operator, you kind of, you might have this job at the theater for a long time, but even then it's different shows, different jobs, different things. So it's, it's worthy, it's worth to, uh, keeping an open mind and an open heart about these things. So speaking of uh, improv and stuff and being malleable and flexible and not wanting a linear path. Yes, um, and? Have you got any tips uh, for people that struggle uh, with improv who get nervous, who can't do it, basically? Yeah, I have great advice. Don't. Don't get nervous. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, that's the worst advice. The worst thing you can tell somebody who's nervous is, don't, is stop, stop, just don't be nervous. Um, nerves are good, number one. Ner and I've, I'm, not, I'm not the first or last to say this. Um, but I am a big believer in it, that nerves, uh, they don't ever really go away, nor should they. If they do, it means either you're an alien and you don't belong on this planet, you're not a human, uh, or number two, the thing you're doing doesn't matter to you anymore, which is a bad sign. If you go on stage and you go, I don't feel much, that's terrible. That's not a good thing. You know, so if, you're, if you have friends that, that go, you know, I just don't get nervous, they're probably lying, number one because it makes them feel better to think that, you know, only the best actors don't get nervous, but everyone gets, I think the best actors are the most nervous, to be quite honest, because it really means a lot to them. And, and I'm certainly, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm a good actor for sure, but I, I don't, you know, I, best is whatever, you know, it's like, that's, it does, that's relative, but I still get nervous and I've done thousands of, you know, thousands of performances of things. And so I, I think one, that's good. Number two, improv for me, the greatest lesson I ever learned and the one I like to pass on is improv is not about talking. Improv is about listening. 
I think that, that so many people who start out in improv and, and, and get it wrong are the people that always are thinking in their head, how can the next thing I say be funny? Or, and if they're too busy thinking about that, they're not listening to the person that they're in a scene with, so they can't take in information. So what they end up saying either doesn't make a lot of sense or just seems a little bit wrong. It seems a little disconnected because they weren't listening. Some of my favorite moments I've ever had on stage, whether I was the one that did it or the one that was party to it, was because we were just talking to each other on stage, something dropped in at the right time because we were listening and something happened and it was brilliant. And I think, by the way, if this helps anybody, because I just was teaching somebody the other day and just kind of flippantly said this and it kind of blew their mind. So I figured like, why not share this more often? Um, every conversation you have in your life is improv. So you've been improvising your whole life. There's just no audience for it. You know, every, you're not, you don't come to conversations planned. You know, you and I are talking off the cuff right now. We're improvising. We're just not being as funny as maybe if someone paid $50 to watch this conversation, you know, they'd be like, I don't know if it's $50 good. So I think the only difference is that there's an audience and it's going to be funny if you're listening because you know what to say. If I say, you know, how you doing? You're not going to go like the weather sure is crazy today. Like if to try, you're going to say, I'm good. How are you? So I think like good improv is like good conversation. So if you're a good conversationalist, chances are you might be a pretty good improviser. Um, and then you have to combat the nerves, but the more you do it, the more the nerves become familiar. They don't ever go away, but that you go, Oh, that, those are nerves. You know, you can identify them and classify them as, okay, those are the nerves. Got it. Moving on. Um, and then, you know, if you're worried about being funny on stage, you know, be funnier. I don't know. Watch comedies, learn. I mean, you, it's, I don't believe that people aren't just not funny. I just think that like you, you can try to be, you can be funny in your own way. Most people that I know who say that they're not funny or believe that they're not funny are some of the funniest people I've known. So if you are having trouble thinking of jokes, don't think so hard. Just listen and respond. And chances are people will laugh. You know, it's so crazy that you said that thing about, um, like, you know, we have everyday conversations because literally as you were saying it, I was thinking like, isn't it so, because we're talking about improv, I'm like, isn't it so crazy that you're just thinking of this? Like, because I haven't, you know, I haven't sent you these questions before and been like, you need to prepare answers. You know, I've just asked you and you're kind of coming up with it and I'm watching your brain work. And I'm like, I just, I really, I like dove into that and you said it and I was like, what? That was so that's weird. It. But that's it. And also, by the way, if you had sent me questions in advance, I wouldn't have looked at them. It's a thing yeah. I don't, it's, it's, it makes, it, it makes for, I think a much more like uh, really boring, you know, stodgy interview to like, to have come up with some weird, like I'm running for office or something. Like I'm trying yeah. to just say the right things. Um, I'd rather say what, I'd rather listen to your question and then try to see what's in my heart today. Cause I'll have a different answer tomorrow. You know what I mean? That's the thing. I, feel, I mean, I also feel like if, you know, if, if it's like a job interview or something, if I got the questions before, I think I'd be more nervous because I'd be preparing them and like kind of rehearsing a script in my head. And then if it doesn't go right, I'd be like, oh, it hasn't gone right. But you know, if you- You're absolutely right. And I, uh, by the way, just to, not that you asked, but I think that you, it, the way you just set this up is that th this job interview idea um, is like an audition, right? Like uh, it, the, the best auditions you can have are the ones that show who you fully are um, in the room, just who you are, period. Not how talented you are, not if you're talented than everybody else, but like who you are. So in a job interview, if you prepared, you know, to the, like, if you prepared to the bone to show them that you're the right person for the job, you're going to be 
first of all, not you at all. You're going to be some weird robotic version of you that's just spitting out the right answers. And number two, that's not something people want to work with most of the time. People in an audition, why it looks the way it looks, in my opinion, in an audition. I think this is important for people because really people have a lot of trouble auditioning and because it's nerve wracking and whatever. But you're not in costume. You're not in makeup. There's no lights. There's no nothing, right? So what, what does it more represent than a stage? It more represents the rehearsal room you're about to be in, which I think is the right way to look at things. How are you in rehearsal? That is basically what people I think are looking for when they're looking for someone to cast because they're not going to throw you right on stage. You're going you're gonna to have two months of rehearsal. You're going to have table work. You're going to have to be in a room with these people and have them like you and you like them and you not be some crazy presence that blows up the dynamic that's already in the room. So that's why I think like if you look at auditions like this is a test rehearsal, like there's something about that that calms me down for sure because the stakes are lower. Like, I'm not getting graded on this. It's just like, do you like me? Yes, no, all right, whatever, you know. As long as you've done your work and you come in and you're yourself, it is basic job interview. Yeah. So I know exactly who Taylor is and I don't like him or whatever, you know, I, or I do. But either way, you've presented a version of yourself that is true. And I think that's the most important part. Yeah, absolutely. I always like the, you could be the most talented person in the room, but if they don't think that they can spend a whole day of tedious tech with you, you're not going to get the job. I say a very similar thing. I say, who's the person you want to, who's the person you want to talk to at midnight during your third week of tech? Like who's the person, because you don't, you don't want either ends of those spectrums. You don't want the person who's negative all the time, but you certainly also don't want the person who's like, isn't it just great to be here? Because you're like, oh no. You know, you want some happy medium of a real person that's like, this is a bummer. This is a struggle. It's midnight. I want to go home. But I am so happy to be here because we're doing a show and not many people get to do that. There's a nice balance that you can strike that most people have. So you're right. It is. Who do you want to spend tech rehearsals with is a really good way to, to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Have you seen any Broadway shows since everything's restarted? I have seen some Broadway shows. And what's cool about that is I didn't, but I, we were trying to figure out what I had even seen because the pandemic wasn't the, I mean, I didn't see shows because I was in Beetlejuice. So I didn't, it was been longer than two years for me. I hadn't seen something because I was in the show. So I didn't get a chance to see anything for a very long time. So I was so excited to go back and see shows. I have seen, in no particular order, we saw Town, which blew my mind into the ceiling. I had such a phenomenal time at that show and had no idea that, like, you think you know because you listen to the album, and I've listened to the album and loved it, but you have no, that's a show that you need to see. That is a show that requires you to be in that theater and, and really sit in that magic. They did such an incredible job with that show, blown away. And I want a, a special shout out actually, because I think this is worth it. I've said this in private and behind his back, but I have not said, I don't even know this guy, by the way. Um, Andre, Andre DeShield was not in the show that day. It was a matinee. And we saw Anthony Chapman Jr., I believe. I'm not sure he's, I, I think it's Anthony Chapman Jr. C-H-A-T-M-O-N, Chapman. Um, and I was astounded by this guy. He took a role that is obviously made iconic by Andre DeShields. This, this guy is, is 40 years his junior. I mean, a young, young, young kid. And he blew the doors off the place. And I just, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that. The rest of the cast are as iconic as you think they're going to be. And, and he just fit right along with them. So there was that. Uh, so shout out to Anthony Chapman. I don't know you, but I'm a huge fan. 
Uh, <laughs> number two, I saw the reopening of the play that goes wrong. It's, it was my eighth time seeing it. It's one of my favorite things ever. It's so, the um, the absolute best. It's the, the, all those guys. I mean, those guys, the, the, the mischief um, theater company, right? Yeah. That's who they are. They're unbelievable. There are some of my favorite things I've seen. And, and that show is the quint that if you want to know my sense of humor, it's that show from beginning to end. Yeah. Um, I was the, I think it was my eighth time seeing it and their stage manager was our stage manager for Beetlejuice. Um, and he knew that it was coming back and at the Broadway flea market said, do you want to come to reopening night? And I said, yes. <laughs> so had a blast there and then saw the reopening in the second row. I saw the reopening of Phantom of the Opera where Angela Weber was DJing afterwards. And he can't, it, it was, so I'd seen Phantom maybe, I don't remember when, but a while, uh, you know, not that long ago, but not that soon. And I was in like the, I was in the balcony. So it's very difficult to appreciate, but second row Phantom, that's a real different story. That, that makes you remember how big of a show it is. That is, if you, if you haven't seen Phantom in a while, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, it's worth a go and it's worth the orchestra seat because it is 8,000 people on stage with 800 feet tall sets. It's the biggest show ever. You forget that because it's been so long since it's been on Broadway, but I had a ball. I really, really, really did. It's not, it's not one of my like absolute favorite shows. Like it's just not, doesn't, but man, it's a good show. Yeah. Quick fire round. Three, two, one. Milk or white chocolate? Milk. Orange or apple juice? Neither. Beetlejuice or Lydia? Beetlejuice. East Coast or West Coast? Ooh. East Coast. Chocolate in the fridge or cupboard? Chocolate in the fridge or cupboard? Yeah. You didn't do a lot of research about me. I'm not a sweets fan, but fridge. <laughs> Night or day? Night. Summer or winter? Ooh. Fall. Ooh. I, maybe these are all things that I could have got off your Wikipedia page. No. <laughs> Does, chocolate? No, it doesn't like it. Summer or winter? No, it likes fall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're all on there. Definitely. All these are on the Wikipedia for sure. And if, what if, else? if they're not, they will be. That's it. That's the, that's the, that was the, it. That was the seven. Yeah. All so right. What's, well, then what's, what's your favorite food in the night? Because I'm always curious about what people's favorite foods are. My favorite food. Oh, my God. Um, chicken katsu curry. Yum. That's good. Very good. Um, very delicious. Yeah, I'm. I'm, but I'm a very sweet person. So yes, you are. Anything, oh, sorry. <laughs> but anything, anything sweet is good. Chocolate is nice. Very, very nice. Milk, dog. No, not really. It's very safe. That's your. That's your opinion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not. A, I'm not a sweets fan. I just never really crave it. I like salty and and uh, I like spicy and things like that. Um, I really did. I really appreciate you wanted to talk to me. Number one, I'm always astounded that people have any interest in hearing what I have to say, but I'm really uh, thrilled that, that you at least did. And for the, uh, you know, two to three million people listening right now, because I know that's how many people will listen to this. Thank you for your time and your ears. Thank you everyone for listening. Don't forget you can book Alex Brightman on broadwayplus.com slash artist slash Alex Brightman. Thank you so much, Alex, for being here. I will speak to you in part two. <laughs> I cannot wait. Part two and part three and part four and five. Taylor, you're the best. And thanks everybody for uh, who, have, who has ever booked me on Broadway Plus and thanks to those in advance. And I really appreciate all of, of the warmth and the kindness that has come my way because of it. So thank you.
Thank you so much. I'll speak to you soon. Bye, Taylor. Bye. Bye.